Well, if you've got a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through uh, 13 this morning. And uh, we are glad that you're back. Uh, If you were not with us last week, we're glad you're with us this week. And uh, just a reminder, Jason mentioned it earlier, but all of our small group programs will start up again this coming week uh, for upperclassmen. Most of them will meet on Tuesday, our growth group, servant team, uh, essentials. So we would love to have you check those out. And then uh, if you're a freshman, particularly if you haven't been before, I'd encourage you also, Dulos will start up again this Wednesday on campus, and uh, we would love to have you involved in that. There's a green sign-up sheet in your chair. You can fill that out, drop it in the black box on your way out, and uh, we will get with you and make sure to get you into a group. But uh, we just encourage you to do that. Um, it's a great opportunity to connect with some other students, but also we really do strongly believe that it is in a small group of men and women where you can study the word uh, that you will really grow spiritually. And so we would uh, encourage you all to do that and look forward to seeing you there. All right, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are our God and our Savior. We praise you that on Jesus Christ, we can stand as a solid rock. Not trusting in the things that we do, not trusting in our own virtue, or in some system, or in some law, but Father, instead we trust in Jesus Christ and rely upon the Spirit that you have given us to obey. Father, we thank you that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ paved the way for us to have a new relationship with you and for your people to know you in a way that we never could have known you before. Father, thank you. We pray as we study your word this morning, um, open up our minds. 
Uh, Lord, remove any distractions from the week, from the beginning of school or uh, family or friends that may be on our minds. Father, we pray for this hour. Allow us to focus on you and your word. Father, help us to understand it. Father, I pray, move in our hearts, let us believe, and then empower our hands and our feet through your spirit, Lord, to obey you as we leave. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. A while back, a uh, friend of mine and I were talking about kind of that awkwardness as a uh, male of approaching a girl that you might be interested in. Many of you guys, if not most of you, have experienced this awkwardness at some point, or at least uh, you felt the awkwardness and maybe decided not to approach her uh, because it was too awkward or too scary. And uh, as we were talking about this, uh, my friend told me a story uh, about a guy, we'll call him Bill, and uh, Bill was an Aggie back when I was here in school. And uh, as Bill went to and from his classes, he spotted a young lady that he found attractive and he decided, I have to talk with her. I have to ask her out. But he didn't know her. He didn't know anything about her. She wasn't in any of his classes. Uh, he just knew that he had to meet her and had to talk with her. And so uh, for weeks, uh, perhaps months, he plotted his strategy. He thought about it. How can I approach her? How can I get to know her? He would lie awake at night talking to his roommates and his friends about it. And I uh, had a really hard time working up the nerve to go and talk with this girl. And so finally, one, one day he said, this is the day. I'm going to do it. And so on his way to class, uh, he was thinking about it and thought, this is the time. And so he sat outside of the building where she had class and he waited for her because he knew that's where she would be. And uh, waited for, some of y'all are feeling awkward already, aren't you? <laughs> Haven't even gotten to the punchline. All right, he waited for her to stand there or to come out. And when she came out, he approached her And he asked her a simple question. He said, uh, can you tell me how much does a polar bear weigh? And uh, some of you have heard this before. She looks at him and she says, uh, no, no, what are you talking about? He goes, just enough to break the ice. All right. Now she looked at him and she walked away. (laughs) It was not a successful interaction. And in that moment, I think he probably thought, I wish I could have that moment again. I wish that months of planning didn't culminate in such a terrible line. I could start that relationship over. And maybe you felt like that at some time in your life, that there's a relationship you would like to begin again. Uh, Maybe it is with a significant other uh, or someone you're dating and things just kind of got off on the wrong track and you think, boy, I would like to sort of reset the clock. Uh, Maybe it's with a friend that you once knew well and now there's tension and your relationship is strained and you just think, I'd like to start that relationship over. Maybe it's with your parents. Uh, Maybe it's with a professor. I can distinctly remember having teachers and professors where somehow things got off on the wrong foot. And I thought, I would really like to reset this, both for the sake of the relationship and the sake of my grade, right? I'd like to start this over. For some of you, maybe it is your relationship with God. Perhaps when you began your spiritual life, you really were overwhelmed at the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And as you looked at the death and resurrection of Christ on your behalf, it moved you to serve him and to love him. And it didn't seem like something that was effort or work because you were so in awe of the cross. And yet as your spiritual life has progressed, it's begun to feel more and more laborious and difficult. 
And what you find yourself often doing is you're in a relationship with God where uh, you find yourself kind of trying to do just all the right things to earn his favor, and yet you keep finding yourself falling short. So you've got this list of things in your head that you think a good Christian ought to be, ought to do, ought to say, and you're trying to do them, and the harder you try, the harder it seems like you fall. Or it may be that in your relationship with God, you've begun to view him as sort of a, a taskmaster, And he's merciless and he asks a lot from you, but he seems to give very little to empower you to do what he asks. And so you think, you know, I really would like to reset this semester my relationship with God. I would love to read the Bible and pray and share my faith, but do these things not because I feel compelled to earn God's favor somehow, but because I'm once again in awe of the majesty of my Savior. And so you may be feeling like you want to reset the clock a little bit. If you were to flash forward and go all the way back to the first century in the nation of Israel, what you would find is that there would be many people who would feel exactly that way. They would say, I I believe that God is in charge. I believe that God is powerful. I even believe that God is gracious. But when it comes to me, I don't always feel that. Because the situation in the nation of Israel was that God had given them a set of laws. Collectively, they just called it the law. And he had given them a set of promises that they could have life in the promised land, that they could have peace from their enemies, that they could have a relationship with him. And, if, and he said, as long as you follow this law, you will have these blessings as a nation. All right, but as the history of Israel goes on, much like I think happens with us in our spiritual life, as the history of Israel goes on for 1,500 years before the coming of Christ, what the people find is that they cannot do what God is asking. So the harder that they strive to keep the law, the worse that they fall, and they even codify it into 613 commands, and yet they still fail over and over and over and over again. Not only the people, but the priests and the prophets and the kings, and they all fail to do what God is asking them to do. And as a result, they constantly experience frustration in their relationship with God. And they constantly experience judgment. The people are uh, attacked by enemies multiple times. They're finally kicked off the land in about 586 BC. The nation of Babylon comes in and they conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, they destroy the city. People are cast off the land. They are able to come back about 70 years later after a time of judgment And yet, for many of them, they fall right back into this same pattern of disobedience to God and service to idols. And so many of them would say, I want to reset the clock. I want a new relationship. There's got to be a better way to do this relationship with God than constantly trying to follow these laws and not being able to. Now, it's into that environment that Jesus comes. When men and women are beginning to wonder, can we really keep the law? Because the Pharisees had codified it and the Pharisees did it a certain way, but the people couldn't do it. And they had this huge burden on them and they constantly felt distanced from God. And Jesus comes and he does something unbelievably revolutionary. And that is he makes a once for all payment for their sin. And by doing so, he invalidates the necessity of all of these sacrifices of bulls and rams and goats. Then he rises again and once for all he defeats sin and so now the barrier between man and God has been removed. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven, he sins, says in John 14 to 16, Jesus talks a lot about this, he sends the spirit and the spirit now dwells within those who believe in him to empower them to service. 
And so that's the new way that Jesus calls us to, no longer by obeying a list of regulations do we walk with God, but instead the Spirit lives in those who believe in Jesus and empowers us and helps us understand what we ought to do. And it's a way of freedom and life because God is dwelling within us, giving us both the understanding and the resources. And that's what Jesus offers that's infinitely better than what the law offered. Now, the problem as we've been walking through Hebrews for the last semester and this semester was that the early Christians, especially early Jewish Christians, the law was so ingrained in them that they were really struggling with this deep desire to go back to it because they were experiencing persecution for following Jesus. And they were beginning to wonder, isn't the law really better? The law provides safety. The law provides structure. It provides a list of rules that I think I can keep, even though history had proven them they couldn't. And so these men and women are tempted to go back to this old system, and it's into that context to probably Jewish believers in Rome that the author of Hebrews speaks, and he says, no, no, if you go back to the old way, you are missing the joy and the life and the vibrancy in your relationship with God that he wants you to have through Jesus Christ. And yes, the law served a purpose, but its purpose is done because of Jesus Christ. And now we live by the Spirit. And throughout Hebrews 1 through 7, he's been making this argument that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old revelation. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is a better priest. And here when we get into Hebrews 8, what he's essentially going to say is Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant between us and God. A covenant was essentially the relationship that the people had with God. It goes all the way back to God's agreement with Abraham in Genesis 12 that we'll talk about. And what he's going to say is God inaugurated a new relationship between us and him through Jesus Christ. That's the covenant. And he's going to talk about that more specifically as we walk through Hebrews 8. And that new relationship allows us to, in a sense, reset the clock and approach our relationship with God with life, joy, peace, and empowerment that we never had before. All right, and where he's going to begin is with the current ministry of Jesus. How does Jesus provide this life and this vibrancy of relationship with God? All right, so he's going to talk about Jesus has a better ministry. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. The idea is that Jesus, he goes back to this idea of Jesus as our high priest that he's been developing for the last couple of chapters. And you remember in the Old Testament, the priest was the one who ministered in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And what was his primary function? His primary function was to atone for sin on behalf of the people. So if you did something wrong, you disobeyed a law, you would bring a sacrifice to the priest. Pay for it out of your own pocket. You would bring a sheep or a lamb or whatever. The priest would take it and he would slaughter it and he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the altar of atonement and that would temporarily defer the wrath of God on you so you didn't experience God's judgment. So the priest stood between you and God to keep God essentially from smiting you, 
from destroying you for your sin. Now, the author has been developing that Jesus has a better priesthood. And if you remember last semester, we talked all about Melchizedek and how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, this priest that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis And the idea of of Jesus' priesthood is that it's an eternal priesthood. He never dies. He's a sinless priest. He has not committed sin. And here he goes back to this idea of Jesus as our high priest. And he says a couple of critical things about him. One is this. He is seated at God's right hand. He's sitting down at the right hand of God. Now that's critical for a couple of reasons. One, when you sit down, what does it indicate? Typically indicates that your work is finished. Picture an imaginary scenario in my home tonight. Perhaps I go home and sit down. I eat dinner with my family. And after the meal is over, dishes are still on the table. Kids are all messy, hadn't gone to bed. And I get up from the table and I say, this was a great meal, sweetie. I'm going to go sit down. I walk into the other room and I sit down in my recliner and I turn on the TV. I can tell you that will not go over. That will not work. Why? Because the work isn't done. There's a lot of work left to do, right? So what happens is we get up from the table, we clean up, we go bathe the the children, we put them in bed, we tidy the house, and then when the work is done, then we sit down. We have that moment of rest. And Hebrews is going to come back to this idea of Jesus sitting down at God's right hand. And the significance of that is he's finished the work God sent him to do. Now he is seated. He has permanently atoned for sin. You better believe a priest in the tabernacle on the day of atonement or on uh, the Sabbath or whatever, he never sat down. He always had more work to do. The next time it was his turn in the rotation, he stood up. But Jesus atones for our sin that he sits down at a very important place, by the way, the right hand of God. The right hand was the most preeminent position in the kingdom. He's second in command. And it says, we know him. We know Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that lives within us because God has given us the opportunity to know him. And so what does that mean? You and I have access to God because we have access to Jesus through the Spirit and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And that means Jesus has accomplished something the old priest could never accomplish. He has gone into the very presence of God on our behalf and he offers a better gift than they could ever offer, his very eternal life. And he serves in the true tabernacle, not in the earthly tabernacle. He is in God's presence. The old priests, all they could really do was go into a copy of the heavens. And they would offer sacrifices that were not complete, that were not eternal. But Jesus, by offering himself, enters into the very presence of God for us. And that's his ministry now. He sits in the presence of God and he intercedes on our behalf between us and God. So when we sin, we know we have forgiveness because Jesus is there. And we're connected to Jesus because he gave us his spirit. And he's in the true tabernacle, not the one made by hands. But it says the one that was made on earth is just a copy of the one that's in heaven in which Jesus serves. If you were to go down the road here this afternoon, you go to the George Bush Presidential Library, you would walk in and as you look at the exhibits, one of the things that you will see is that there is a exact replica of the Oval Office during his term in office. And in fact, you can even go into that Oval Office And you can sit down behind the desk. The docent will take a picture of you if you'd like. You can pick up the phone. You can pretend to be the president. But what you can't do is order thermonuclear war, right? You can't do that from that desk. 
You can't send troops into Canada. Right? You can't do that. Why? It's just a copy. It's nice. It might be beautiful. It might have its advantages, but it's just a copy. The real one is a couple thousand miles away. And what Hebrews is telling us is this, that the tabernacle here on earth and the temple, it had a function. Its function was this. Until the coming of Jesus, as they made sacrifices in that tabernacle, it deferred the wrath of God on the people. It also served the function to reveal to them the holiness of God and the expectations he had for them. Every little transgression required some kind of a sacrifice or atonement to show the people the seriousness of sin. It also allowed the people an opportunity until Jesus came to participate as a nation in living in the promised land and the promises of the old covenant. But it, it still was not the fullness of what God intended in Jesus Christ. It was just a copy, a replica. And Jesus, he says, serves in the real one. And he provides permanent forgiveness. And he provides permanent relationship with God in a way that the copy never could. And he does that on the basis of now what the author is going to call the new covenant. Mediates a better covenant between us and God. Look first at verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus mediates a better covenant that, first of all, was enacted on better promises. Now, to understand what he's talking about, we need to go back to the Old Testament for a minute and look at Genesis chapter 12. So keep your finger in Hebrews and flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 1. Okay, Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham later, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All right, so God takes Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and he gives him a promise. You go to this land and I'm going to give you this promised land. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, he later says. And I'm going to allow you and your descendants to be this amazing blessing to all of the world. So there's these promises that apply to the nation of Israel that God gives. Well, later on in the history of Israel, after the people leave Egypt, God also gives them a particular way to participate in those promises once they get into the land. And that is by following the law. If you were an Israelite and you followed the law, you knew that you were within the keeping of what God wanted you to do. And what that meant was uh, you were not going to be kicked off the land. You were going to have the opportunity to have posterity and descendants, and you were going to have the opportunity to bless the nations and be a part of what God was doing. The law did not provide for them eternal life. It never was intended to. That wasn't a part of the promises of the covenant to Abraham. These were earthly promises given to a people for a temporary period of time until Jesus would reveal what God really wanted from them. And what the author of Hebrews says here is this, is that the covenant that God gives through Jesus has better promises. And he's going to lay those out in verses 7 through 12. And the better promises involve eternal life, permanent forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, not only for the Jewish people, but also for all of the Gentiles as well. So it's enacted on better promises. And that's the point of this quotation in verses 8 through 12 from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. He's going to say it's enacted on better promises. It also doesn't have the flaws of the old covenant. 
Look at verse 7 through 12 now. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Here comes the new promises. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. And everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, two flaws with the old covenant. The first one was uh, that it could not provide permanent forgiveness of sins. It couldn't provide permanent forgiveness of sins because a bull, a goat, a ram, those things can never atone for a person. Every time I sin, you got to do another one. The second problem, though, was not with the law itself. The second problem was with the people. The people were unable to obey the law. Why? Because they've inherited, just like you and me, a sin nature from Adam and Eve. And so the harder they tried, the worse it got because they were in their hearts and minds and spirits in rebellion to God. And so what they needed was a new way of relating to God that would actually transform their hearts and their minds and their spirits to be in keeping with what God wanted. They could not do it. And they saw this repeatedly throughout the history of the nation. They always failed to keep God's law. Some of y'all know I have three kids. Our middle child is three years old. And uh, her name is Abigail. And one of the things that we've noticed about Abigail is that she prefers not to eat meat. She doesn't like meat. Don't know why, but uh, she'll eat fruit, she'll eat bread, but uh, meat just isn't her thing. It's the opposite of my son, actually. Meat is all he will eat. But our uh, three-year-old daughter just won't eat it. And so in order to get her to eat the meat, uh, many times we have to put the meat on her plate first. And then we say, if you will eat the meat, you can have some bread. But she hates that. She doesn't care to do that. And so often she will sit there and she, although technically she can put the food in her mouth, she just can't bring herself to put it on the fork and put it in her mouth. She'll look at it. She'll pick it up. She'll think about it. She'll even touch it to her tongue, but then she sets it back down. She'll smell it. She'll move it over here. She'll move it over there, but the meat will never go where it's supposed to go into her mouth and into her stomach. And so even though she can technically do it, she won't. And so what she does is this. She'll look at me and she'll say, Daddy, can you put the meat in my mouth for me? Why does she do that? Well, I I don't really know, actually, except, (laughs) except that in her mind, something she can't do, perhaps I can provide empowerment to do it. So she opens her mouth and she doesn't have to make herself do it. I put the meat on the fork and I put it in her mouth and then she chews it up and she swallows it. Now, technically, she can do it. But something in her keeps her from doing it until I provide the resources. This was the problem with the law. Technically, could they obey? Sure. In fact, when God gave them the law, he says, look, it's not, it's not so high it's up over your head. It's not down low at the bottom of the ocean where you've got to swim down and get what I'm wanting you to do. You understand this. It's near to you. It's on your lips. It's in your heart. You can obey. So on one level, the law wasn't really all that hard to obey. But on another level, it was impossible because the people were inherently rebellious and they could not change themselves. And so they needed empowerment. And so that's what God provides through Jesus Christ. 
Okay, and here's the way this, this goes out. Jesus Christ takes away this problem of sin that creates a permanent rift between me and God. When Jesus dies on the cross and rises again, he takes away forever the problem of sin and that paves the way now for the spirit of God to live in me. See, prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, prior to my sin being atoned for, I am completely unclean. So the spirit can't live in me. God cannot live in a dirty disgusting vessel filled with sin. And so Jesus removes that so the spirit can now move in. And what the spirit does is something unbelievable that they had never experienced. And that is the Holy Spirit, if you believed in Jesus, dwells in you and the Holy Spirit now empowers you to do God's will. And all the law could do was provide temporary forgiveness, but it provided no enablement. But that's what the spirit provides. Look at Romans chapter eight. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. In other words, the law simply produced problems for me because I couldn't obey it because of my sinful nature, my flesh. But God did this, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, what the spirit does is it's God moving in. So instead of my list of regulations, I come before God and I make myself available to the movement of his spirit. I come to the scripture. I make myself available to the movement of the spirit. I come into community and I make myself available to the movement of the spirit. And it's not that I don't need authority. It's not that I don't need community. It's not that I don't need the word of God. It's that now, through the power of the Spirit, I have the ability to really understand it. It's now, through the power of the Spirit, I have the understanding to discern. When a friend says, you ought to do this, you ought to do this, I can discern through the Word, through the power of the Spirit. Is this what God wants? I have understanding and discernment and the ability also to obey, even though I don't always choose it, because God lives in me. And because He lives in me, I'm able to have life that I never was able to have before. That is what the new covenant promises. All right, now, the reality is that uh, the new covenant was originally promised to the people of Israel so they could experience the fullness of what God promised. But because of Jesus, you and I as Gentiles have essentially been grafted in. We've been given those blessings. And we don't have all of them yet. All of us would agree that the sin nature still lives within us. We still fight against it. And that we won't fully experience the full blessings of the Spirit until the day we are glorified in a new body and completely made to to be followers of Jesus in the full sense that he intends when we see him one day. But that process has begun, and we're called now to obey the Spirit instead of the law. And that's the beauty of what God has promised. Our relationship with him is no longer based on a list of regulations. It's no longer based on just gritting our teeth and trying a little harder. It's based on the fact that God lives in us because of what Jesus has done. And by doing that, what Jesus does is he makes the old ways completely obsolete. Verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. It's on its way out. In my lifetime, I've seen a number of changes in the way that we watch uh, movies at our house. When I was very young, one of the first movies I remember seeing at my house was the original Tron. Not uh, the one that just came out, obviously, in the theater, but the original one, which is better when you think about it 
in hindsight than it was when they made it the first time, right? It really was not a very well-done movie, but we loved it. And we watched it over and over again, right? Because there were little cars that raced through a computer and all that kind of stuff, and we loved it. Uh, But the way that we watched this movie was that we had to rent a special machine and the disc that it came on, this is not an exaggeration, the disc was this big. It was about a foot in diameter. And we would slide that gigantic disc into the machine and we would watch it. And uh, we couldn't really afford to rent a whole bunch of these because they were expensive. And so we would watch that movie over and over and over again. And then we would take the machine and the disc back to the store. That's how we did it. Now, a few years later, they came out with VHS tapes and then DVDs. And then now you have, you can stream stuff on Netflix or on your computer. And this process has changed. But here's what's interesting. In my house, I still have a VHS player. And I've still got a stack of old VHS cassettes that we are slowly trying to eliminate by replacing them with something else or tossing them out. And so although the new ways have come, I still have little remnants of the old taking up a drawer in my armoire. Some of you may experience that. Some of you may not know what a VCR is, for that matter. I don't know, all right? But the reality is that the new way has come, even though there's still vestiges of the old. And what Hebrews 8.13 is saying is this, is Jesus has inaugurated the new way such that the old is obsolete. That VCR, it's obsolete, but it may still hang around for a little while. And, And the problem isn't the new way. The problem is me. So you and I, we may still from time to time approach God through the flesh, but what Jesus is calling us to do is approach him in the power of the spirit. We still struggle with the sin nature because we're not yet fully glorified. But God is moving us in that direction as we seek him, as we pray, as we obey and listen to the voice of the Spirit. God moves us to the place where the vestiges of this old way of disobedience and death and law-keeping, it'll go away. And what will replace it is vibrancy and life and joy in a relationship with Jesus we couldn't have another way. Practically speaking, what this means is sin no longer has to control you. The reality is that I know for many of us in here, you feel like sin is just, it's controlling you. There's some sin that just has you by the tail. It won't let you go. And the harder you try, the worse it gets. Because the harder you try to squish it down in your own flesh, the harder your flesh fights back. And the reality is what Hebrews 8 is telling us is that in Jesus Christ, we depend upon the Spirit. And we seek to be in keeping with the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to sin ever. But what it means is that slowly, as we come before God in prayer, as we submit to the Word, as we submit to the authority of the community God's placed in our life, slowly those vestiges of the old life can fade away. Not on the basis of trying harder, but on the basis of looking at what Jesus has done saying, God, through the power of your spirit, transform me to be more like that, like Jesus Christ. So the question as we close is this. Are you approaching your relationship with God in light of the new way of grace through the power of the spirit? Are you still doing it through this old way of law? A legalist is fundamentally somebody who believes that by keeping particular commandments, by doing things in just the right way, they're going to have the right relationship with God They're going to earn favor before God. Maybe by holding other people to those standards, they're going to earn favor with God. A person who walks in the Spirit goes to the Word, goes in prayer and says, God, help me understand what I'm going to do. And then God, empower me to do it. Not because of me, but because of the power that Jesus Christ has given through his death and resurrection. 
It's fundamentally the difference between pride and humility in our walk with God. Do I believe I can change myself or do I submit myself to the relationship that I have with God through the Holy Spirit and allow him to transform me? For some of you, it may be that you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You're still trying to run that treadmill and work your way to heaven. You think if I can be just good enough, I can have eternal life. And for you, the message this morning is that the only way to know God and have eternal life is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you stop trying to earn your way to heaven and you, you exercise faith in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That only because of what he's done can you have forgiveness and eternal life. For others, you've, you've done that, but you're still running the treadmill. And you're convinced if you can just go to one more meeting, if you can just read five or six more Bible verses, if you can just pray 10 or 15 minutes more, maybe God will convey to you the merit that you've earned so that you will finally have the relationship with him that you need. And the reality is that's not how the Christian life works. It's a relationship. Yes, you and I come to the scripture and you can do the exact same behavior with a radically different attitude. One of submission and humility to say, I'm not coming to earn favor before you, God, because Jesus already did that. Come because I want to know you. I want you to transform me so then I can love and serve others, so then I can share the gospel with others, so that this life of the Spirit virtually bursts out of me into the world around me to transform it. Is that how you're approaching your relationship with God? Will we live in light of the freedom that God has given us in Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I know that this morning um, there are people here, including myself, who we struggle with thinking if we can just be a little better, you'll love us more, you'll care for us more, we'll earn favor. And Father, I pray let us put those things aside and recognize that if we've trusted in Jesus, you live in us through your spirit. Let us rely upon him. Let's approach our prayer lives, our life in the word, our spiritual disciplines, our acts of service, all of these things. Let us approach them with an attitude not of earning, but an attitude of being grateful and desiring the transformation of the spirit to take place in our hearts for your glory, not for ours. Father, I really pray in this moment that we would just just pause if we need to before we leave. Reorient our relationship with you so we can, in a sense, reset the clock from the the ways we've gotten off and begin a new semester with a new way of relating to you. Thank you, Father, and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. See you all next week.